Welcome to the I Am Woman Project. I am your host, Catherine Plano. I am a creative soul adventurer, a modern day alchemist, and on a mission to empower the conscious people of this world, those who seek to learn, grow, understand, and become the very best version of themselves that they can be. Every week, we have thought leaders, change instigators, and inspirational human beings from around the globe that offer you profound teachings and recent discoveries from the world of neuroscience, positive, cognitive, and spiritual psychology to help you build wealth, health, love, and achieve lasting transformation. So join us here every week for new lessons on how to lead a life that matters, how to escalate your life after failure, and how to inject more meaning connection and resilience into your life and your business. As a way to thank our guests for their time, energy and wisdom, we would love to demonstrate our appreciation, gratitude and admiration. We would love to hear from you. What was your key takeout from today's session? By writing a review in Apple Podcasts with our guest's name and insight. And when you do, please make sure to take a photo and send your photo to support at katherineplano.com.au and we will send you a personalized cosmic blueprint for free. It's a report based on your unique birth chart to discover your true calling and how you can best make a difference in the world. Thank you. This week, as always, we have a super, super amazing guest for you. We have the beautiful Dr. Lucy King. Dr. Lucy King is a zoologist and the head of the Human Elephant Coexistence Program for the research charity Save the Elephants based in Kenya. She has been researching the use of honeybees as a natural deterrent for crop raiding elephants since 2006, publishing her findings in numerous scientific journals and has featured in various natural history documentaries on BBC, Discovery and Al Jazeera. Her Doctor of Philosophy thesis through Oxford University and in partnership with Save the Elephants and Disney's Animal Kingdom was awarded the Thesis Award of 2011 from the United Nations Environment Programs Convention on the Conservation of Migratory Species. A member of IUCN's African Elephant Specialist Group, she has been working hard to spread the ideas for coexistence between elephants and people, helped by her TED Woman talk that was listed fourth in the top 10 TED Talks for 2020 with a reach of 2.4 million views. Since 2018, she has been supporting women's groups in Kenya to find alternative ways to live in harmony with elephants and in 2020 finished construction on a women's enterprise center in the heart of a human-elephant conflict hotspot next to Tsavo National Park, which will help provide alternative income generating projects to at-risk women. It's now time to tune into this one very inspirational human being. Enjoy. Well, we have a special guest for you today. We have the lovely Dr. Lucy King all the way from Kenya. And I can't wait to get into this conversation. And you'll see why. So welcome to I Am Woman Project. Thank you very much. Hi from Nairobi. Yes. Oh, Nairobi. I, I've got, why have I written down Kenya? Nairobi. So uh, for those that don't know, that is in uh, Africa. And uh, before we got on the show, uh, Lucy was just explaining that there might be a little bit of noise because it, it is the time um, of the day where there's monkeys that uh, uh, run across the roof um, because of food, right? They get the fruit from the trees. Is that correct? 
<laughs> that's right we have this beautiful tree outside with these red berries and it's the time of fruiting season so we have these sykes monkeys that run through and chomp on the roof and we, they drop on our tin roof and it's uh it's quite a noise sometimes i think we've missed most of it this morning so we're lucky <laughs> but it's very cute actually we love it oh i would love a pet monkey it's one of those things i think we've all dreamed or maybe not all of us but i know for me i um i think i was in time not time in bali i remember uh holding a monkey and I was like oh I want a monkey for a pet it's so beautiful <laughs> they're even better wild <laughs> yes I'm sure so Lucy the way that we love to start the show we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to share her unique story so Lucy tell us what inspired you to do what you do today well thank you well Today, I am head of the Human Elephant Coexistence Program at Save the Elephants, and I've been working with Save the Elephants for almost 15, just over 15 years now. But my story really began because I was fortunate to be brought up in Africa. So my parents were both teachers, and they had quite unusual bohemian ideals. And we were brought up in Mogadishu in Somalia, and then we moved to Lesotho, um, and the capital, Mazeru, where I spent most of my childhood. And that's a little country surrounded completely by South Africa. And we were living there during apartheid region, which was a very tough time for South Africa, as I'm sure you know. But Lesotho was this hotbed of kind of liberalism and outward thinking, and it was very multicultural. And we lived there and had a fantastic childhood, um, living on a farm and going to an international school. But when we were lucky enough to go on safari, my parents would take my sister and I in a old Ford Cortina, like a really bashed up white one with black stripes down the side. And we would go off into South Africa, into Botswana and Zimbabwe, Namibia on safari, like cheap safaris. We would put tents in the back and we would drive into these game parks and camp for several weeks at a time because we were all on school holidays. And it was a very um, informative time for me, spending a lot of time in the bush. Um, my dad would tell us what all the animals were, and he's a real birder. So camping and living in the bush for a long time, I got to really love wild animals. And I was became very obsessed about studying them and understanding what they were eating and why they were moving where they were. And we would sit at waterholes and watch them come down. And then when we were in South Africa, I used to really have a sort of moment when we saw all the fences around the game reserves would really block off the animals from exiting the game reserve, which made sense. You wouldn't want lions and elephants and rhino walking into villages. But at the same time, it kept all the community members out of the wild, beautiful bushland and they couldn't afford tickets to go into the game parks. And it just didn't seem quite right. So when I was 14, I, I heard about this study of zoology and zoology is really the study of animals and animal behavior. And I just became obsessed. And so since the age of 14, I've never really looked back. I've wanted to understand how elephants and animals behave, um, particularly the large animals and how they interact with people. Um, and for me, migration corridors and having free roaming African animals is really important. So that's what I've really dedicated my life to is understanding how can we live with massive wild animals and live in harmony with them? And so I've spent a lot of time studying elephants, and that's my particular species of interest, and trying to work out how people traditionally used to live with elephants and why is it so different today? And there's such a change in today's world. Um, so I went on to study zoology and, and biology, and I, I did my master's and PhD with Save the Elephants in, in Sambru, studying elephants. So Maybe I can tell you about that research um, and, and what we discovered during that research time. Oh, I would love to hear about it. <laughs> Great. Well, in Samburu, which is the northern part of Kenya, it's a very wild, dusty, vast and beautiful landscape. And the research centre where I was based for five years, I lived in a tent on the Owasso Nero River, which is um, a brown river, which is semi it comes and goes throughout the year but it's a critical water site for elephants so the elephants come into the reserve and they meet each other and mate and then they leave the river and go back into the wildlands and what happens was there's a lot of um, overlapping of people and elephants and one of our professors at Save the Elephants professor Fritz Volrath he's my supervisor at Oxford University where I did my master's and PhD he heard a folklore story that there were some trees along a beautiful river. And he asked the guy, he said, gosh, these trees are particularly beautiful. Like they haven't been damaged from elephants in any way. They're really like glorious. And the herder just said to him, well, obviously there are beehives hanging in them. 
the bees are protecting the trees, as if everyone knew that. And we were like, what? We, we don't know that. So it turns out that actually not many people do know this. This is a folklore and it's a, um, an indigenous knowledge from the bush that wild beehives are protecting the trees that they're in from elephants foraging too much on them. So we did a study and understood that they would actually uh, protect elephant, protect the trees from elephants. And I took this up idea up as my um, study and we wanted to understand, can bees really scare an elephant? Is it possible that a bee could sting an elephant? It seems totally unrealistic. <laughs> so a tiny, tiny honeybee um, is about a centimetre long. You know, and these elephants are seven tonnes. They weigh, you know, they're just immense. Some of these bulls are four metres at the shoulder. I mean, it just seems impossible. Anyway, it turns out that the bees do sting and they sting the elephants around the watery areas. So around the eyes, up the trunk, in the mouth, maybe on the thin skin of, of small calves. So these elephants have learnt over time to just avoid trees with beehives in. Um, and so I studied that and the interaction between these two species for my PhD, trying to tease apart this extraordinary animal behaviour that no one had discovered for science before, but it had been uh, local knowledge. Um, and so that was my PhD and it was just the most phenomenal phenomenal study. And um, he ended up designing, I ended up designing a beehive fence, which is basically taking the idea but making it an adaption. So we build beehive fences now with interlocking wild beehives around small farmers' fields to try and stop the elephants coming in. And it gives the farmers a protection from the elephants. Um, it protects just an acre at a time to allow the farmer to have some food while keeping the corridors open. And then the bees pollinate the crops. And of course, the farmers can harvest the honey and make some income. So it's created this sort of livelihood, holistic livelihood approach to what is a very serious problem across across Africa now is this human elephant conflict with elephants and people clashing in the most horrible way. Um, and we're trying to stop elephants being injured by angry farmers and of course farmers being killed by elephants. So that's the crux of my story in a very short uh, time window um, and happy to answer any questions you might have about that. That is really, really cool. I'm sitting there. I've got, I've just got to pick my jaw up off the ground. So excuse me for a moment. <laughs> so I guess this leans into uh, a TED talk. So for our listeners, uh, Lucy has got a TED talk uh, and it's called How Bees Can Keep the Peace Between Elephants and Humans, which she pretty much just explained for you. That is really cool. And when you were talking about the elephants, I remember a story a long time, and I'm talking about a long, long time ago, when they used to have, I don't think they do anymore, elephants in a circus. And mm -hmm. it, they talked about the elephant in the circus. When they're little, they tie the elephant's uh, leg to a pole, right? And so the elephant tries to escape from the pole but can't escape. And then as they get older, they get conditioned because they've tried and tried and tried to get conditioned. And so... Then all of a sudden you see these adult elephants on this stick, right, a stick and a rope. And you think, why didn't they try to get away? And, and the story is very much to what you, you were explaining. They're very conditioned to um, whatever they've experienced. So it, it's – and it's almost like it's, it's – um, it sounds like it's passed through – the 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 elephants they all know because not I, I don't think every single elephant would have been bitten by a bee right for them to stay yeah. away from the bees that's right so yeah what what your philosophy is is exactly what we looked at as well you you're on the right track so whether it's what we call an innate knowledge like whether they instinctively know as they're born to avoid bees um, humans have an innate fear of certain things I think like snakes seem to be quite an innate fear for us that we even a small child can be scared by them so we actually did that experiment and we played bee sounds to elephant families and the young young calves did not react at all so we don't think it is an innate fear we think the young ones are learning from the matriarchs which is the the lead mother in the group um, so we we understand that as they get older they are watching their mothers and responding correctly to how she's reacting to things. So if she's not scared of something, they won't be scared of something. So she doesn't run away from an impala bouncing through the bush because the impala is not a threat. But if she runs away from the sound or the visual of bees, then the calf will learn and hear the sound and connect fear um, to that sound. So it's, it's not an innate fear. Interestingly, we discovered it was a learnt behavior, which is why Elephants are so important and the matriarchs are so important and the herd structure is so vital. So when you lose a matriarch from the elephant family, you lose a lot of that knowledge that's been stored. And, 
you know, 50 years of her experience of living in the bush and knowing what is dangerous and what isn't dangerous. Um, and if we lose the matriarchs, which we've done during poaching outbreaks when the older elephants are killed for their ivory, you can end up with delinquent youngsters who don't understand what's fearful and what's not. So it's very important that we allow elephants to live in their natural herd structure. Oh, that's really sad. And you know, I was just thinking, we do that as humans. We pass on our fear. I mean, we call it parent programming because we actually impose or pass that fear or whatever that may be onto our children. Absolutely. I mean, incredibly important. You know, when they say grandmother's tales, you know, the, our grandmothers and, and um, older members of our community have so much knowledge because they've lived through more than us. So, you know, it's, I always feel sad when you see old people left alone in old people's homes and you're like, gosh, they're, these should be the most revered members of our society. They've, they've got so much experience. And if we would listen to them and take some of their knowledge, we might not be making the same mistakes in society like we are. I'm, I'm um, also curious, what, what are some other discoveries that you came across, uh, you know, living and working with the elephants, uh, you know, um, over the, the few years that you've been doing that? Yeah, it's such a privilege to spend time with them and the research team that I'm a member of understand and know all the elephants. So they've, they're named, they understand their life histories, they know who's related to who. And by spending so much time with them, I also got to learn most of the families and, and particularly the matriarchs. The older the elephants get, the more visual cues you get for who they are. So they get rips in their ears. Some of them have bullet holes through their ears that are in the, in the right place that you remember. Um, some of them have very wonky tusks. So you really get to know them as individuals and the characters that come out. You can't believe some of these elephants. Some of them are stroppy. Some of them are really playful. Some of them are humorous. Some of them kind of tease each other. We had a young bull that was notorious for sidling up to the side of the car and he'd pick up, um, you know, these big seed pods on the ground and just throw them in the car and then kind of run off. And he thought that was hysterical, you know, such a fun game. So you just, you know, by just that sense of um, the intelligence that they have and the sentience that they have. And then you can't believe when you come across a female that we would have studied, you know, and she's been shot and her teeth hacked out um, by poachers. It was so, so terrible to, to see basically a friend killed. Um, so we've had some ups and downs on the project and we went through the second ivory crisis, which was really between 2010 and 2012. Um, there was a large ivory sale that was permitted in 2008 and it triggered this horrible second wave of poaching across the whole of Africa. 100,000 elephants were killed in three years. And it was due to the demand for ivory. So we we went through a very traumatic time in our study period um, while I was doing my PhD. Um, and so those are the kind of things that we are hard to forget when you lose those individuals. A bit like losing a horse or a dog that you know well, and then having seen them killed. Um, so that was that was very dramatic, and it sealed in me a real passion to save them because I know what the individuals are like. And we, when we're looking at the whole continent of Africa, we can't forget the individual and the. Um, the characters and the, the joy that they have. That's really sad. That's horrible. And so what is it like now? It's it's obviously not the same today, not not in the, you know, not in the last couple of years. Things have changed. Um, do you mean from COVID or from? Oh, the... no, no. I'm just thinking like the whole ivory thing. I think people have, yeah. have things back down a bit. We so there's there was a lot of work that was done. It was a very very devastating time period. Um, we had a huge announcement in 2016 um, because President Obama and President Xi Jinping of China sat down and made an agreement that China would stop selling ivory um, domestically. So that was a, an absolutely fundamental agreement uh, that China have stuck with. There is still illegal trade, but at least the legal trade has been um, stopped in China. So the Chinese stepped up and, and um, we're now trying to, to see whether the rest of the illegal ivory trade can be closed down um, around uh, other parts of the Far East, so Laos, um, Cambodia, um, Vietnam. Thailand, those kind of countries really need to uh, stop selling ivory. And there's some challenges there with um, anti-trafficking work and anti-demand work. But fundamentally in Kenya, where I work, um, our poaching has gone right down. We have an amazing civil society here in Kenya, quite a good support network for the wildlife service. Um, in Kenya, we don't ever, we don't have hunting. We don't put a value, monetary value to animals. 
they're incredibly valuable for tourism and for the general you know GDP of the country. So we value them culturally, but we don't put a money price on them. So that's helped us get through the last few years where people see them as a cultural value. Um, so we're very proud of where Kenya is and our poaching is right, right down. So it's no, no longer the biggest problem. The biggest problem now is human elephant conflict and how to let a growing human population still live with elephants, which is not easy. Um, and that's where our project is really focused on. So when you say it's not easy, it, it's, 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 uh, I'm trying to kind of understand, it's, is the elephant uh, attacking humans because the humans are impeding on their territory or is it the other way around where the elephants impede on the humans in, the, in their properties? Yeah, so, I mean, really what's happened, I guess, from the seven, 1970s, roughly, the Kenyan human population is a, roughly quadrupled um, and the elephant population was slashed because they um, because of the poaching in the 70s, 80s um, and early 90s. So we used to have around 150, 160,000 elephants in Kenya um, and now we only have 30,000. So there's way less elephants than there used to be. Um, but the increasing development of Kenya and Kenyan um, livelihoods has basically seen a huge spread of development. So it's houses, schools, communities, farmlands, roads, bridges, pipelines, oil pipelines, telephone wires, everything is just spread exponentially across the country. So we're seeing corridors for wildlife being blocked um, by human settlements. And some of the areas we work in, which are the heaviest and largest elephant populations, I work in Savo National Park down in South Kenya, which is immense. I mean, it's the conservation area itself is around 42,000 square kilometers, which is, you know, it's the size of Denmark. It's absolutely immense. And we have around 14 to 16,000 elephants. Most of the park is unfenced. So the elephants are, are moving in their old migration routes between the different sides of the park or between watering zones or, you know, in the drought, they'll go to the rivers. And um, in the rainy season, they'll go into the really thick bush and stock up and get in, and breed. Um, and then suddenly they're coming across farms that have been built up in their migration corridors. So the elephants are, are just continuing what they used to do, but they're coming across cabbages and tomatoes and maize and going, oh, here's a juicy little breakfast. And of course, as soon as they tasted those crops, the crops are far more nutritious than their forage in the natural bush. So they get uh, they don't forget. So they learn, oh, that was a great cabbage spot last year. I might as well go back next year to the same spot and see if the guy's still growing cabbages. And if he is, these elephants start to learn every March, I'm going to go and eat cabbages. So they, they we get these habitual crop raiders that have sort of taken on a new behavior by by um, learning to raid crops because it's so nutritionally beneficial um, and the farmers are getting more and more irate um, so it's a very difficult thing because it is humans that have taken more space but these are typically humans and people who are at the very lower end of the poverty scale and really the poorest of the poor who are now living in these semi-marginal areas so it's not as easy just to say well move everybody it's not that simple these are people who are already disadvantaged in life and struggling with their low incomes. So we have to try and find a balance of, you know, stopping the um, expansion of all these farms. But for the farmers who are there, how do we help them and how do we keep the corridors open so the elephants also have their space? It's, it's a massive problem and a massive challenge. It's kind of cute. If I was, if that was me, I would have two cabbage patches, one for me, one for the elephant. Elephants, yeah, I should say. Yeah, that's great. We'll have you as a farmer. That's perfect. <laughs> I don't see why best. people can't do that. I mean, why not share the land? Why not share, um, you know, the cabbage? That's the way I see it. Yeah. And, you know, this is the, this is the challenge is that, you know, it's the same everywhere. You know, we we humans are quite selfish. We like a lot of things. We like to have um, in, in Africa, people like to have a lot of cattle and livestock and they like to have a farm and they want to have um, lots of water. And there's just this sense of, People do deserve to have the right for a good quality life. We all do. We're all striving to have more, to have a better house, a better roof, internet, you know, electricity. All of us want those things. It's really hard to turn around to a farmer living in literally a mud hut and saying you can't have those things. So how, you know, finding the balance is really, really tricky. And we absolutely have to leave enough food for the elephants. And that's the problem is people are not leaving enough food for the elephants. They're Livestock are grazing all the grass. Um, they're cutting the trees down for charcoal so that grass and the trees are being absorbed by humans as well. And that's the, that's the unfair balance. Mm, sure is. So I'm curious, Lucy, talk us through a day in a life with Lucy. What does your day look like working <laughs> in conservation? 
Wow. Well, you'll probably know from talking to conservationists that we have extremely long days. Um, we work absurd hours. Um, I once heard someone say that lawyers have these really long work days. And I was like, oh, what kind of work days? And we're like, all of us just looked at each other and went, that would be a quiet day for a conservationist. I mean, we work the most ridiculous long days. We're sort of up at six o'clock. Um, if, if I'm in my research centre, I'm in Nairobi at the moment, um, but if I'm down in Salvo um, in my research centre, which is more or less kind of half my time, um, we're up at 6, 6.30, breakfast, uh, we, we go out in the morning. Um, I'm happy to say I have lots of interns and students who help me with this now, but we go out in the morning and monitor the farms. So we're, we're studying a whole series, uh, several hundred farms on, a, on the edge of a corridor. Um, the reason we're working there is because we're trialing a whole load of different ideas for how people can live naturally with elephants. So beehive fences, which are my main you know, project, uh, we have about 50 farms uh, protected by beehive fences. Each farm has around between 12 and 15 beehives around each farm so that we're monitoring those, seeing if the elephants are coming in and out, how are the bees doing, how much honey is the farmer harvested. But we also have lots of other ideas. Beehive fences are not necessarily the answer to every farm. Um, so we have new novel ideas we're testing. We've we've encouraged the farmers to grow sunflowers, which is a crop the elephants don't like to eat. And we're harvesting the sunflowers for oil and for seeds and selling those, um, which is better for farmers to get, at least get some money rather than losing their crop to maize. We're trialing a smelly elephant repellent farm, which is this kind of concoction of chilies and cow dung and garlic all mixed together. And it stinks and elephants stay away from it. So we're hanging that around some farms. Uh, we built watchtowers down there um, we, to, so community members can go up and see where the elephants are. Um, and we have an education program and also a women's enterprise centre, which is very active. So I kind of bounce between all of these projects, um, checking out what's going on. We're building a new honey processing room at the moment, so I might drive and see that. And then all of my teams, we have different field teams doing different things, come back for lunch. We have a, a great a little kitchen in our research camp. And the afternoons are typically writing up data, um, putting in um, information sheets. I have lots and lots of phone calls all the time with different project partners. We're supporting projects all around Kenya and our beehive fence idea has now gone to 20 countries around the world. So I'm bouncing ideas with different people. We have the beehive fences in Thailand and Nepal and Sri Lanka and um, across as far as um, Mozambique and Tanzania. Um, Gabon, all these places are trying the beehive fence idea. So lots and lots of communication, trying to help other people around the continent. Um, and then in the evening, we sometimes go down to the watchtowers and see what's going on if the elephants are coming in. Um, and my young students, we have a great internship program. So we try and organize field trips for them to make sure they're getting the most experience, maybe going out into the national park, monitoring some of the collared elephants we have. So it's full on. So I guess we go to bed at about nine o'clock, maybe 10 um, it doesn't stop. So Sundays, we try and take Sundays off if we can, but that's usually a time to, you know, check in on emails and occasionally see my family. Um, and yeah, it's, it's full on. So there's no stopping. It's, um, and we don't really, you know, it's like a cause. It's not really a job. It's, it's a, we sometimes feel like we're doctors for the environment. We are so passionate. If some problem pops up, we will jump out of our tents and go and help. Um, and we're looking after the community as well. So we, you know, we have so many community problems that come in and people having medical challenges and we, in the middle of the night, we'll drive someone to the hospital. So it's just a constant, constant um, sort of flux of life. It's not a, not, not a boring life, that's for sure. No, and I'm just in awe with what you do. I think well, congratulations with the, the, uh, the whole concept. I absolutely love it. You're obviously not scared of bees. <laughs> so the funny thing is that all of this so when I started my my work in 2006 um we messed around with beehives like you can't believe trying to work out how do you hang them how do you disturb them and then we'd try experiments and put, I mean it was a ridiculous amount of things so I got stung so many times doing all these experiments because I'd you know you'd drop a hive by mistake or you'd open a door too quickly or um, we were hanging beehive fences. I mean, just imagine just messing around. So over time, I've become quite allergic to bees. So I'm now officially allergic to bee stings, which is the most ridiculous thing because I work with thousands of them all the time. So I have to be very, very careful now. I carry an EpiPen. I've tried to have my, um, you know, those injections to make you more tolerant. But um, that's one of the one of the fallouts of my work is that I've actually ended up with 
um, a kind of um, overexposure <laughs> to bee stings and become allergic to it. So, yeah, that's an interesting little risk factor that I've taken on. Wow. You, you never a dull moment. You're living on the edge. I, I think <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm allergic to bees too. I can't. And that's why I was thinking, God, if that was me, I have had two bee bites and have had to go to the doctor in hospital because I, I, I might like, I remember the very first one was on my foot. It was like double or triple in size. It was amazing. Yeah. Pretty yeah. amazing. Sorry about that. Yeah. It's very, very serious. And particularly if you get stung like we are in the bush, it's, um, it's very scary, actually. I've had some pretty close calls with it, and it's not it's not fun. But for some, my mother's very kind of confused why I'm still risking my life doing this. But it's just, I just try and stay away from them now, and I just carry a bee veil when I go with me to see the beehive fences. But, um, yeah, it's it's not ideal, I have to say. No, but you, you love what you do. You can tell you're so passionate. It's it's And for you, it's not work. It's, it's like because you're so passionate – uh, it doesn't feel like you work a day in your life because of what you're doing. And that's what that's what I feel anyway. Yeah, it's it's absolutely right. Because every time you feel, oh gosh, you're exhausted or, you know, you need a break or um, you just think, well, there's so many more important things I should be doing. And these elephants in particular, which is my initial driving passion was that was the animals and just seeing them being poached during that terrible time and seeing, you know, there are so few of them and so many of us. So although we're working incredibly hard to help the communities, we mustn't forget that these individual elephants are the last precious mammals left on this planet. There's only 400, just over 400,000 left of these individuals spread over 37 countries. Um, and every single one is precious. Their DNA is important. Their, their family structure, their history, we can't lose sight of that. So if we ever have a, a sore day, we just have to think, gosh, we've got to keep going because these elephants are relying on a very few of us to look after them. Um, and Save the Elephants is just doing a phenomenal job all over the continent. Um, and in Kenya particularly, we've got a very strong team, but we we really aren't stopping. I mean, the amount of work coming out of our team, everyone's exhausted, but we just can't stop. You know, it's just a real passion and a real cause. And this last year of COVID has created even more challenges for us with the national parks are losing all of their income. There's no tourism. So the budgets have been absolutely slashed to peanuts and trying to help keep these national parks and the integrity of them. So the elephants stay inside the park is really difficult. The parks are now having people invade them for cattle, for grass, for trees, because they're hungry. There's no jobs. Um, a lot of the lodges have closed down. Um, so people have gone back to their farms and, the conflict's rising. So we're very worried. 2021 is not looking great for us. Um, so I hope we haven't even, we've only just started getting the COVID vaccine in Africa and we're a long way off the rest of the world. So we, we're we worried about the rest of this year for sure. Mm, I, I'm sure. And I think, you know, just, just from an, astro I mean, I study astrology. So from an astrological uh, point of view, um, it's not going to be as full on as 2020, but there's still there's still some little bumpy roads along the way, um, yeah. a bumpy road I should say along the way, but uh, nowhere near as bad as 2020. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> no, and so Lucy, I'm also curious, what is it like? Because you talked about the Women's Enterprise Centre. So being a woman living in a male dominated world of conservation in Africa what is it like and is this why you now have the women's enterprise center yes I it's quite an interesting world to be in it is a very male dominated world living in the bush and working with rangers and you know farmers and um, even the conservation world is quite male dominated um, and we have really strived in on my project um, to make sure we have gender equity. So, for example, I my team, I have around 22 staff on my project and we're 50 50 women, men. And we have an intern program where we um, actually have a bias. So we have about 80 percent women, 20 percent guys, because we're trying to redress the fact that um, some of our young women graduates and school leavers are not getting the same opportunities. Um, and the the Women's Enterprise Centre came out of working with the farmers that we work with who are living with conflict. And so many of the first beehive fences that we built were with guys because they were the ones at the meetings. They were the ones standing up telling people, I've got all the elephants and the women weren't really given a voice. So it didn't take us long to realise that we had a gender imbalance um, in our work, in our experiments. So we started proactively trying to 
seek out the women, finding their story, discovering that the reason they weren't always at these meetings, because they were the ones slaving away in the farms, they were the ones actually doing most of the work, um, planting, harvesting, um, weeding, looking after the elephants. I mean, it was extraordinary to discover that actually mostly it was the women doing everything. So we rebalanced it and we started to discover First of all, the women were harvesting crops, but not necessarily getting any of the money from the harvest. So they were really struggling with day-to-day -day living costs, even for their own sanitary pads. They didn't even have 50 cents to buy those at the end of the month. Um, they didn't have any money to pay school fees, despite the fact they were the ones working so hard because the money was just going into their husband's pockets or their brother's pocket. So we started to help them with, we had a lot of brainstorming thinking, what can we do as an alternative income that doesn't take you away from your farms, but just gives you another income stream. And we're always keen about looking for um, eco projects that don't harm the environment that are natural and organic. And there's this one plant called sisal, which is um, also known as jute. And it grows quite freely in our part of Kenya, but there's also a massive farm near us, which has a lot of offcuts. And if you strip these leaves back, it creates a rope. Um, and the traditional, um, old traditional ways in this part of Kenya was to make baskets out of this rope. So we got some trainers in, some older ladies who remembered how to make them and taught 40 women to make these baskets. Now, these baskets are beautiful. Um, they quickly remembered all the different methods and the colors and the natural systems. And they started to sell these baskets within three or four months of having training. Um, and the money literally just lit their eyes up because for the first time they had $20 in their pocket to pay the school fees, to go and buy some um, milk, to buy some underwear. Some of these ladies didn't have underwear. You know, suddenly that empowerment of selling their own product and keeping their own money um, was seeing an elevation in their livelihood and their and their spirit. So we decided that what they needed was their own safe space. And over a couple of years, we've, we've worked on funding and got an amazing donor to help us. We constructed a women's enterprise center that we opened, um, officially opened two weeks ago on, on International Women's Day. But actually, it was finished in 2020. We just couldn't have a celebration in the middle of COVID. But this wonderful center is now um, a private space for these 40 women and um, by, by default, 40 families that are benefiting from this. And it's a, we've done sewing and tailoring workshops. Uh, we're doing alternative um, food production ideas. We, we've taught them how to make their own soap. Uh, we have a small shop now where they can sell their baskets and all the products they're making. And we've just started to teach them how to make bee suits so that they can help do the repairs for the farmers who have the beehive fences. Um, and we've done multiple trainings. In fact, we've also had yoga and mindful sessions with them, which absolutely blew their minds. No one's even thought about self-care they're just thinking about how do I grow potatoes and this idea that they could actually talk about their feelings um, and express themselves if they were feeling anxious or depressed and how to control that through meditation and mindfulness and some yoga stretches which had them in peals of laughter no one's ever even heard of yoga um, and all of these things has just opened up their mind to how much more life can offer um, even when you're literally on the edge of poverty and struggling with day-to-day -day things so we're so proud of this project um, and just feel like this is a, an example of what, what's needed, just that little support and capital to give women a chance to flourish and to come up with their own ideas, their own enterprise, and they can now run with it. Um, and we, they can make their own profit and, and it'll be separate from our project. Um, we're really proud of it. So if you want to learn more about that, our, our website, elephantsandbees.com, has all the photos of the Women's Enterprise Centre and, and what's going on there with the basket weaving. It's very cool. Very cool. I've got goosebumps over goosebumps over goosebumps. We'll have those in the show notes. You, I just think that is you're an extraordinary woman, Lucy. And I'm, I'm curious, was it you that showed them to do the yoga and the mindfulness, or did you get somebody else to do that for them for you? There is an incredible uh, group in Nairobi called the Africa Yoga Project, and it's young Kenyans who have who are um, self-taught with a few experts who've come in. And they are extraordinary, a really fantastic youth group who came and helped us with that. And what they're going to do now, we're actually going to try and raise some funding to um, get their trainers to come and train at least one or two of the women in the community to be a yoga teacher so that we can have some longevity to this. Um, so over the next year, if we can, we'll get someone to come up once a month and do the actual training course so that we have some yoga practitioners in the community. And, you know, I don't think this is a luxury. I think this is something that people, 
it's important to really think about this. And I think with this kind of global chaos going on right now, everyone's feeling it. It's not just us in the first world thinking, oh, you know, we're feeling the world's imploding. Everyone's feeling it. And our farmers have the right to, you know, have some support systems as well for their emotional well-being because they're the ones having to live with these huge animals and we're expecting them to cope with these massive pachyderms coming into their farms every night and we're not thinking about them emotionally so I think it's a rounded package and it's what we call like this one health approach where you've got to be thinking about community health whether it's mental health or physical health and animal health whether it's you know livestock or wildlife and then environmental health it's got to we've got to be conscious of our water and our air the soils what what pesticides and pollutants we're putting in because it all circles back if you're pumping pesticides into your crop then you're not going to feel very well it's going to affect your kids health and lifestyle it all comes back on itself so everything's interconnected so it's interesting that we're now doing yoga to save elephants <laughs> basically that is really cool and it is all into they weave like it's all interconnected interconnected as you were speaking i was like of course it's it's like the the, the cycle of life one cannot exist without the other um, exactly i just exactly. you know I, I think that i'm just listening to all these ideas that keep popping in your mind you just i think you are born innovator and entrepreneur <laughs> well yeah, I think so. I think I do spend an awful lot of time thinking and looking and reading. And I, the way I cope with it is I walk every day. So I, every day I get an hour's walk in and I leave my phone behind. Um, and walking really helps because I have 50,000 things pinging around my brain. And if you look at my, pro my project, I force mind maps on all my staff who kind of look at these with absolute horror going, what is going on in your head? And I think I just see all these connections. And then I try and work out how on earth to connect them and how to pay for it and how to staff it. And, you know, what I just feel like the world is the more you read and the more you learn, you realize what a mess everything is. So just to try and focus in and do what you can for your bit of the world. And that's what I'm trying to do is, is um, I do feel overwhelmed sometimes by too much knowledge and just seeing how much how many problems we have in this world but if we can just focus on one thing and i've chosen elephants and communities and and we're actually taking it quite far but just one thing and becoming an expert at it and trying to think laterally differently and definitely holistically because we can't pump any more chemicals into this world we've got to start thinking of natural solutions to everything because uh, we're on the brink and yeah, so it, it's, uh, I don't sleep very much, actually, because I just have a lot of ideas around. I have to get up in the middle of the night and write stuff down. So I've also got to probably do a bit more yoga and self-care <laughs> to make sure I get some better sleep. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's I, a lot I, to do. I think you've got a couple of books under your belt. Really good <laughs> books. I think that that might help empty what's in your, your mind yeah. is maybe doing some writing, writing a couple of books. But as you were saying, I'm just going to focus on the elephants and the environment I'm going and the women and the bees and yes. the you know and the baskets and so it just it's it's just absolutely beautiful so I, I'm curious too in your most adventurous journey and when I say adventurous wow it is very adventurous what has been the greatest lesson that you have learned thus far hmm well that's a big question um my greatest lesson well I certainly have learned to listen you know and I think that's something as scientists we sometimes plow ahead with technical solutions and I know for example that beehive fences work for keeping elephants out but I wasn't necessarily listening to why some of the fences were not working very well and it was like stopping and going well, hang on what's happening with this individual farmer and why is it not working for them and just sitting down and realizing that everyone is different and so solutions to things are different. It's not, there is never one size fits all in almost any industry. Um, there is no one perfect way to go through this world. So adapting things to individuals and making sure that um, how, how people are functioning and um, going through this life is really important. So you have to listen, you have to work out individual quirks and how to fit solutions to that person. So not all of our women are particularly keen basket weavers, for example, just because we know it's a brilliant idea and they can sell it. Some of them are just like, I'm pretty useless at this. Can I do something else? <laughs> and so they, you know, OK, great. Let's get you sewing some bee suits or let's get you um, doing some organic permaculture. And they they take to that and off they go. So I just think we have to be a little bit more um, holistic in our approaches and, and just thinking sideways and just taking on board um, our emotional well-being and in parts of our solutions as well. 
Um, and I, wor- I worry about politics being very, um, you know, single minded about certain things. And life is much grayer than that. It's not so black and white. Mm, yeah, it's so true. And I think that um, it's, 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 I think it's a, it's a great lesson because it applies to all of us. I think we don't, we can't approach anything as with a blanket approach. It's, it's got to be, uh, it's, it will be unique to every individual depending on their circumstance and their situation and the environment and so forth. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you were talking about before too, I, I just I just remembered what I wanted to say when you were talking about um, uh, not preservatives, but you were talking about, you know, like some of the chemicals and so forth that we use. We were having this conversation um, just the other day. It's interesting how many all of, all of these, uh, you know, people have come up with all of these different uh, ailments or these things that have come up you know for example um, my mother was saying you know we didn't have celiac 50 years ago we didn't have certain you know all of these things but you you have a look at the amount of chemicals that goes into our food compared to say even 50 years ago um, because mm-hmm. we do a mass production and chemicals it does it impacts like you were, you were saying this as well that in not just in, about the the in, impacts the environment it impacts the individual and then the, the family and the animals. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's no question about that. We we have interns who've come out from America who have all sorts of gut problems and, um, you know, allergic to gluten, and they spend two months on our project and all those issues start to go away. And I'm not joking. We just don't have that kind of level of, of spraying and crop production through chemical-based solutions here. And um, I've, I've witnessed that in my American interns who've come in. It's fascinating. Um, and I, when I go back to the UK, I'm very careful about what I eat because I know a lot of it's being sprayed by weird stuff that you just go, you wouldn't, you wouldn't take a teaspoon of that, but you're, you know, you're eating a tomato with it covered with those sprays. Of course it's having an impact on us. I mean, these are really tough chemicals. So, yeah, we, we don't have those kind of challenges even in our community where people are very poor. No one has those sort of um, gut problems like that. They have other issues, other medical issues, mostly, you know, environmental based like worms and, and stuff like that. High blood pressure from not drinking enough water because it's so hot. Um, but it's really, really critical. And we, we know this about our world that we're using too many chemicals. There are some fantastic documentaries that have come out um, about like soil health and how that feeds into everything we're eating and if you're just pumping chemicals into the soil of course you're going to end up with that inside your gut um and it has a very negative consequence and i don't know all the science behind it all the medical science behind it um, but all i know is that we're you're always going to be better off with all the other challenges and pollutants in the world by eating organic um and by eating less red meat and all those things which have these other negative um, environmental consequences so I think, you know, this COVID experience has woken us up. We have to start thinking more about our health, the health of ourselves and the health of the natural world, because we've spiraled out of control um, and we need all of us to get back on track. And it takes all of us. We can't rely on governments to do it. They take way too long. There's too many arguments. We just have to do it individually and support those farmers who are planting organic. And sure, it costs you three or four bucks more a week to pay for it. But that's because that's the cost that it takes to go natural. Yeah, I agree with you, and it's pretty horrible. What you know, when you think about all the toxins that goes into the food, even, even I mean, some of those. Sometimes you look at the ingredients in you know in a jar. And I don't even know what a four o two is, or you know, it's just you know, it it does make you think twice about what you're putting in your body. That's for sure. So, yeah. Lucy, as we start wrapping up the show, we always love to ask our woman of inspiration to pick one word that best describes her personal brand. What would be that one word for you, my dearest? Oh, wow. My one word for me, I, I suppose it is passionate. I am very passionate about my project and everything that I'm doing. Um, and I, yeah, I take it to an extreme sometimes, but yeah, I'm very passionate about elephants and the environment and what we're doing. Um, so I'd like, maybe that's my word. Mm, I, I have to say that's a great word. I don't think that I've encountered in my life. And I know this is a big statement, anyone as passionate as you. That is and it's wow. a big statement, I know, yeah. but I'm just I've been listening to you speak and I'm just going, Wow, 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 what an amazing, extraordinary woman you are. Really are. The last question oh. is that we always love to ask our woman of inspiration is to pick three shiny golden nuggets that you would like to leave for our listeners today. So that could be like three practical exercises for our audience. Okay. Um, okay, three golden nuggets. I think, well, 
I, I've talked a lot about this already, but I, I really think that it doesn't matter what your job is, what your lifestyle is. We all of us, every single one of us has to incorporate um, protection of our natural world. Um, and that includes the plants, the species, the trees, the soil into our everyday lives, because actually the entire planet um, relies on us now. Um, and we've seen this with COVID. So we have to incorporate the natural world and protecting it into our everyday lives. So that's my number one, I think. Um, and then secondly, again, a theme from my discussion today is that women really are the significant contributors for the solutions that our world needs. Um, I think we've seen this across politics, across many other spheres, but I think women um, have this natural nurturing um, capability and that's what our world needs right now. And I think they're massively underrepresented um, at proper decision-making levels. And that's we're really talking about government and like industries um, and it's industries and government that are causing a lot of the mess right now. So I think women are hugely underrepresented. Um, and yeah, I think the third one really is that we can't stay silent anymore. Um, I think women in particular, but those of us who know what's going wrong, we have to be bold. We have to be ready to step up. We have to be ready to do interviews like this. We have to get out of our houses and make a difference and make a change and I don't necessarily mean you have to carry a placard down the street, although that might be your choice of how to make your voice be heard. But we can't stay silent. We can't let um, the wrongs be allowed to carry on because there's too many wrongs and we need to right it all. And we really feel that time is ticking now with this last tw tw 12 months of chaos. Um, and we've, as we come out the other side with our energies changing and this kind of disruption that we've had, we've got to we've got to now do do better. We can't just let this old life and this old cycle of destruction go on. So those are my three nuggets, a bit philosophical. Um, and my fourth one would probably be get more sleep. Because <laughs> that's what I need to do. <laughs> no, I know. And Lucy, I'm just, thank you so much for the, the amazing three shiny golden nuggets. And we'll have all the links in the show notes. But where is the best pay? Oh, I can't even talk. Best place for our listeners to find you. Where do you hang out the most? Uh yeah, I mean, we, you know, our website is amazing, elephantsandbees.com um, um, and savetheelephants.org, which is our main organization website. So much information. Everything's free to download all our papers and manuals. And if you want to build a beehive fence, you can see your, a free manual on there to build it. Um, and then our Facebook page for us, for Elephants and Bees, is very active um, and we have quite a lot of followers both on there and the Save the Elephants page. So, um, it's a really great place. We do lots of field blogs and postings. And yeah, it'd be great if anyone's more interested. My TED talk is really trying to wrap up all of this in 12 minutes. It's a bit more succinct. And uh, it's it's great to share that because that's what TED's about, sharing great ideas. And that's what we're trying to do is share these ideas across more of the world. So thanks for watching it and sharing it for me. Thank you so much, Lucy, for coming on the show. It's been extraordinary, amazing. I'm still in awe with you and what you do. I can't thank you enough for your time, your energy, and I am sure our listeners are going to reach out and um, keep doing your magic. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine, and have a lovely, have a lovely day and a weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you so very much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard and this topic really resonated with you and you think it will help others, please share the show with your friends to help us make a difference. And if you want to be part of our mission to help empower the conscious people of this world to learn and grow, then the best way to help us achieve this goal is by giving us a good review on iTunes or please subscribe to the show. The more subscribers, the better the speakers for the show, which then means more value for you so that together we can help the world become a better place. Don't give it another thought. Hit that subscribe button and help people get their weekly lessons. And when you do, please be sure to let us know by sending us an email to collect your special gift where you have a choice from six guided meditations or an ebook to soothe your soul. Now, if you have any questions or special guests that you would like to hear from, please send us an email to support at katrinplano.com.au and we will get right back to you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Catherine Plano. Until next week, please take care of yourself. Much love and gratitude. Thank you.